Investors Chronicle. This week on the Companies and Markets show, Belvoir is our result of the week. Mark Robinson has all the details on that. Arthur Sants joins us to help identify which companies are best set up at the moment to weather the inflationary storm. Elon Musk buys into Twitter and Buffett buys into Hewlett-Packard. All that and more. Companies and Markets show, welcome back, 7th of April, as we record about 4pm. In the afternoon, delighted to be joined by Arthur Sands. Welcome back, Arthur. Uh, Thanks for having me. Alex Newman, as normal. Hello, welcome back. Hi, John. Hi. Hi, we got Mark Robinson. Yes, you have. Hi, Mark. And Julian Hoffman as well. Yeah, hello there, John. Hello, good crew. Good crew today. Good crew today. Yeah, delighted to, to to have you all here and to talk through some some of the news from this week. But before we get going, as normal, I'll uh, just do a rundown of some of the the biggest stories over the past uh, five or so days. Uh, so last week we told you that private equity group Sycamore Partners had two takeover bids rejected by Ted Baker. Uh, this week, the clothing brand has launched a formal sales process. Um, price uh, price rallying twelve percent on the news of that. Um, packaging group Smurfit Kappa has joined the list of companies pulling out of of the Russian market. Uh, Smurfit Kappa currently has three plants in in Russia, but say it only accounts for about one percent of sales. Um, Shell, meanwhile, have released the damages from their their sale of Russian assets. Um, they'll take a, a non cash. Uh, $5 billion hit, although this bottom line impact will be partly balanced out by higher oil and gas prices. Uh, John Glenn, Economic Secretary to the Treasury, signalled the UK government's intention to support crypto companies and pursue a dynamic regulatory landscape, that's a quote, for crypto and digital assets. Uh, Proposals outlined in the speech include the Royal Mint creating an NFT by this summer, and regulations around stablecoin, that's crypto, which is pegged to fiat currency. Elon Musk has become Twitter's largest shareholder. The Tesla CEO bought almost $3 billion uh, worth of shares, amounting to a 9.2% stake. More on this from us uh, a bit later in the pod. Warren Buffett also buying again, this time stumping up over $4 billion uh, for shares in Hewlett-Packard. Again, we'll be, we'll be on top of this a little later. Uh, the markets this week, FTSE 100 up around 1% at time of recording, um, while a tech sell-off has seen the S&P 500 down 2.5%. Right, on to our topics. Firstly, uh, we've got our results of the week. And Mark, we're coming to you for this. Uh, it's Belvoir. Belvoir is not, not the biggest fish in the, in the property pond. So, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about it, what it is, and uh, what you've made of its, uh, of its report. And keep it yes, short, Mark. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, it is rather underwhelming this week. We've got a few more interesting results coming up in the next few days with uh, ASOS and, and Tesco. But um, Belvoir, of course, is is, uh, is a relative minnow, as I put it in the article. Uh, but it, their experience over the last 12 months does cast some light on uh, the evolving nature of the property market. Uh, the, the, the results was tagged as 25 years of unbroken profit growth. I was too lazy to go back and check out if that's true, but I can <laughs> take them uh, at their word. Um, and it was a good it was a good set of results for the company as well. Their uh, their uh, key metric, which is uh, management service fees, were, were up by about a, a, a fifth. Uh, they run a, a franchise model within the uh, 
real estate sector and uh, M&A has been a feature of, uh, of this year's uh, results as well. Um, you know, Bilbao provides a, a microcosm in relation to the housing market. The backdrop, of course, is that the government has been uh, putting the screws on the buy-to-let sector in, in recent years, and that relates both to tax po policy and uh, also on the environmental front as well. And so you've got a situation now that uh, with, with so many so many of these landlords pulling out of the market that private rents in the UK are rising at their fastest level in, in five years. And that's at uh, the same time as we've got a worsening uh, cost of living crisis too. So the good, the good news as far as uh, landlords are concerned is that uh, rental patterns are returning to pre-COVID-19 uh, status. Um, and that's because the, the pandemic itself has, has loosened its grip. And while we might, um, we will definitely see permanent patterns in terms of things like hybrid working, demand for urban uh, properties, which was a particular worry, has, has bounced back to a large degree. And and it's the youth of the nation uh, behind this as well. A lot of younger people are returning to cities, uh, chief among them students, of course. That's important for Belvoir, but important for the industry as a whole, but it's important for that company is that uh, a high proportion of uh, its revenues are generated through rentals rather than sales. So its property division uh, delivered uh, revenues up 27% during the period. And that was um, aided partly by a deal to uh, acquire a student accommodation network called Nicholas Humphreys. Uh, it meant that uh, the, the company was able to double its net cash through the period or its net cash um, outlay in relation to um, M&A. And the, the cash pile itself was up by a quarter as well. And long dated debt is uh, is down too. So it's been a, it's been a pretty, I wouldn't say stellar, but it's been a solid performance by the company over the year. So at the, at the moment, the, the, the shares, they're, they're not particularly expensive at uh, 14 times of consensus earnings. And the prospective yield is just over 3%, 3.3%. And this is the company as well. It's got a net margin of 26% and a return equity of about 20% too. But they, I mean, it's not a, that's not a bad entry point really for investors, but... I, I would just sort of, um, I would just be cautious in terms of uh, the interest rate environment. I mean, we, we had the overnight announcement by the by the Fed that they'll they're looking at um, incremental increases of uh, 0.5% on the base rate, and no doubt uh, the Bank of England uh, could well follow suit there. So we we can't be sure on what effect that will have on on the overall property market going forward. But anyway, that's uh, as I say, that was a, a decent set of figures from Belvoir. Yeah, decent set of figures that have uh, well have landed them our result of the week, albeit as you say, in a bit of a, a bit of a down week. But yeah, we we do have plenty of uh, plenty of results, and uh, including including your one of Belvoir there. That's on our website and in our magazine as normal. Right. Let's move on. And uh, Arthur is here because this week our magazine features uh, an inflation special and Arthur's been one of our, our lead writers uh, on that. Um, Arthur, with producer price inflation rising faster than consumer price inflation, margins everywhere are being hit, though some companies are, 
are better placed than others. So I guess your your article takes a look at what kind of companies at the moment are well set up to weather the inflationary storm. Yeah, so I sort of started out by looking at producer price inflation and looking through the different sort of components of producer price price inflation, which show, and then the input, the imp company inputs, will show how much different factors are inflating. And as all of us know, the vast majority of inflation is being driven by energy. I think the input, the annual inflation rate for energy that companies were purchasing in February was at fifty seven percent. Um, and then the next biggest input was chemicals, which is around 20%. So um, the majority of inflation has been driven by rising energy costs. Um, so sort of the traditionally, I think if you're looking to protect your portfolio from rising inflation, you want to look for companies with pricing power. So that means companies that can raise their prices without losing a lot of shareholders, not shareholders, sorry, without losing a lot of customers, so they can raise their prices and maintain their margins. And historically, companies that have had pricing power, um, oh, sorry, I should probably mention a good way to sort of measure that is basically to look at gross margins. You want companies with high gross margins, but also stable gross margins. So you don't want them to be too volatile over the last few years. And the companies that people usually like with pricing power, Two big ones are Unilever and, and Reckitt. Unilever has loads of really famous brands. You've probably heard of like Dove, Marmite, Ben and & Jerry's. And the kind of thinking is that people love those brands so much. People love Marmite so much that they don't mind if they increase the price of Marmite because they have to have it. Or hate every, it, famously. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so they have to have to have it on their toast every morning. So it doesn't matter if it goes up a few pence. Um, however... I think Reckitt's brands, what are they Reckitt has like Durex, so that's some essential to some people and less so to others. And then there's um, Finish and like other cleaning products. And the idea is the brand strength so strong that they do take a while before they substitute it away for like a sort of um, own brand supermarket version of that. But Arthur, I thought you were about to start to talk about the elasticity of demand for Durex. No, no I think I think it'd be pretty pretty inelastic for some people and extremely elastic for others. But, um... I remember they used to send us a goodie bag years ago. I don't think they do that anymore. Do you think we have to declare those goodie bags? I'm not sure. Um, but with Unilever, sorry, back to back to topic. With Unilever, they've actually been somewhat struggling to. They've increased. I think it was the last quarter they increased prices by five percent. But their operating to margin dropped uh, 10 basis points. And next year, they're forecasting it to fall between a, like 100 and 200, I think 120 and 240 basis points. So even though they're increasing prices, it seems like um, revenue is dropping enough that um, their um, margins are falling. And which probably is because people are choosing, like the cost of living crisis is so severe that people are choosing to go for like own brand, other versions of the products. So sort of the way that I then thought about tackling inflation is rather to look for companies that can pass on the rising costs is probably to look for companies that whose costs aren't really rising as much. And because this inflation is so asymmetrical, it's so tilted towards energy. My thought process that was backed up by notes from uh, Peel Hunt and Li- Liberum. Um, is that how you pronounce Liberum? Lip- Anyone help me with that? I think it's Liberum. Liberum. Okay. Liberum. Thank you, yes. Alex. Liberum. They actually tipped um, the bowling companies, Hollywood Bowling, Ten Entertainment, which I've, I've, I actually mentioned in 
Um, sorry, it's going to be a shameless plug. My newsletter, The Squeeze, um, which came, uh, comes out every Friday. But um, the reason why Hollywood Bowl and Ten Entertainment are great, I think, um, is A, I love bowling. So I assume everyone <laughs> else loves bowling. But also um, only 5% of their costs are utilities and they're hedged through to 2024. The majority of, or 20% of their costs, which is their biggest cost base, are people. And real wages, although they went up a lot last summer, have actually been its negative real wage growth in November, December, and January. So if your biggest cost base is wages and they aren't going up nearly as much as oil, which is driving most of the inflation, their cost bases are not nearly as exposed to this sort of asymmetric inflation we have at the moment. And obviously there may be concerns that if there's this cost of living crisis, no one's going to want to go bowling. Like, But it's only eight quid to go bowling at Hollywood Bowl and you get food, drinks and bowling. Hang so on, that's like... is this a plug for Hollywood? This is totally into Hollywood Bowling. <laughs> well, yeah, everyone, yeah should buy... ad. everyone should buy Hollywood Bowl shares, of course. Um... <laughs> also, Arthur, can you do laser, laser Quest at Hollywood Bowl? Um, no, they have, they, but they've opened up a range of um, uh, mini golf, mini golf now. So, um, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, which is also pretty fun. I prefer bowling. I would, uh, I would say on uh, the bowling, the business model, you get the impression that they depreciate both, well, the shoes are probably on a 50-year time scale, <laughs> don't they? And and also the bowling balls, you, you don't really need to replace them that, you know, it's not like computer hardware, which runs out. It's, it's shelf life is three years, isn't it? This is These are assets which are going to stay around forever. Yeah, it's, and they've the, got, it's the perfect business. Actually. And they've got this interesting, yeah, interesting new bit of tech as well where the, the bowls, the pins are on strings, so they can um, pull them up really quickly, which is faster than sort of, the traditional like swoop, swooping away the pins and then reassembling them so they can get through games faster so they can get more people through. Wow. It's a good company. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, Hollywood Bowl, Tell Entertainment, I think are good companies that will be immune to inflation. Also, they're actually at the back end of last year. Um, so November, it was October, November, December, Hollywood Bowl's revenue was 38% above 2019 levels. So before pre- the pandemic. So it seems like um people are still really keen to get out there and bowl um so i've sort of i guess sort of crux of the argument is services which rely on people don't have as much inflation pressure as um goods and if you've got sort of expendable income um it would be relatively cheaper to go bowling than it would be to buy a fancy new leather jacket or something because um that jacket's going to be made in some country somewhere and then shipped across the ocean. All of that is pretty energy intensive process. So there should be larger pressures on discretionary goods than discretionary discretionary services. I saw um, I saw a note from uh, UBS this week as well where they, I think they singled out semiconductors as one of the, the I suppose, the hard, hard goods, which um, actually has a lot of pricing power. That's both, I think it's partly because of the structure of that market that it's dominated by players who can essentially charge what they want for uh, some of their products but at the same time I think some people are also concerned that inflation could actually lead to uh, there, there is there is actually a limit to some of the pricing power for, for semiconductor supplies because demand at some, at some point demand destruction is going to kick in a little bit um, and if you compare that, compare that for example to to pharma, I mean that's that's another area where you know farmers, far, pharma companies are price setters. Um, I mean, Julian, you know a lot more about this than I do, but the and, and in a in a sense they are there's less in yeah there's less elastic demand. There is a little bit 
less elastic, isn't it? Because you, you know, if you need if you need pharmaceuticals, you've got to buy them. Yes, that's right. So yeah, uh, you you end up, um, but they they have to operate to reference prices, which is why they all hate the NHS so much because the NHS uh, the price it pays for medicines is then it gets copied by all other healthcare systems because obviously we we basically run a healthcare monopoly here. So um, the, there is a certain regulatory they have to, they have a certain amount of regulatory um, imposition on their pricing, but uh, fundamentally, yes, you're right. They, if you're ill, you, you you don't have any other choice but to pay what they're asking for. Basically. Yeah, I think with um the point about semiconductors, I think Apple um like cut back on production of right, and so they're going to cut back on production of. They have this like cheaper iPhone, um, which is, um, they said they just like had a lot less demand for the cheaper iPhone because of the cost of living was going up and there's less money to be spent on consumer electronics. So, did I not just read there's a massive that Mercedes Benz have uh, sent away five thousand workers because of a lack of semiconductors? Was that? Yeah, they all go there in Brazil. In, in Brazil. the Brazilian factory, they're all been given holiday because there's no semiconductors. Wow. Sort of. No semiconductors to be had. A nice butterfly effect. You get to go sit on the beach in Coco, Copacabana. Yeah. <laughs> Makes you think, what 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 shortage do we have to uh, endure here at yeah. the Investors Chronicle to get a month off? Maybe this is why Elon Musk is uh, is joining Twitter, because he's, he sees the massive demand destruction about three months away for, for all electric vehicles, that he's, he knows he's got more time to spend in a very neat segue to our next item or if I've got the running order wrong. No, you've, you've got the running <laughs> order spot on. You do. And we, yeah, absolutely. Well, as as you say, Alex, and as I mentioned earlier, Elon, Elon Musk, 9% holder in Twitter and he's uh, he's joined the board. He's very much not a passive uh, passive investor as I believe he he filed, uh, he filed the documentation saying he would be and that's now under investigation. Arthur, you, you again, you covered this very briefly in our in our um, morning newsletter, didn't you? What's what's the what's the precise details with Mark? Um, idea. So I think there's two sides to this. One side, which is uh, you mentioned about the filing. Actually, I got all of my info from reading Matt Levine's Money Stuff newsletter, which our listeners should subscribe to if they don't already, because it's great. But um, I think the sort of passive. Um, he explained that the. Um, so he filed initially for a 13G, which is like a you file for that if you have no intention of um, actively involving yourself in the company. Um, but then he then changed that to a 13D when it was announced that he would join the board. But then when he had filed the 13G, he was also tweeting things about, um, do you think that um, Twitter polls asking about whether Twitter... Um, upholds freedom of speech. Um, I think seventy percent of people responded to the poll saying that they don't think Twitter upholds freedom of speech. So I think the point uh, um, there is that he filed for a thirteen G, which was supposed to be a passive filing, but then was while he owned all the shareholders was um, hold while he owned all the shares was still tweeting asking questions about Twitter's operations, and then switched to a thirteen D. He was also late on the filing, so. He passed through the five percent threshold for Twitter ownership um, at the beginning of March, and you're supposed to file ten days after you pass that threshold. But he filed eleven days late, um, and then so I think that's what the SEC are a little bit um, investigating is that um, also all the shares he bought between the five percent mark and the four percent mark um, 
the value of those shares then will have jumped up loads because the price of Twitter jumped 26% when they announced that he had become the chief shareholder. So they're like, potentially, I guess he could be fine for like the $127 million difference between the value of those shares when he passed the threshold and the jump in the price of Twitter when he announced that um, he was now the largest shareholder. But then I guess the question is like, is having Elon Musk on your board and your largest shareholder, does that make Twitter 26% more valuable? You could probably argue no, because Elon Musk doesn't really care about how much money Twitter makes. Like Elon Musk is worth $250 billion and his shares in Twitter are worth $2 billion. So even if, his share, even if Twitter doubles in price, it's like a rounding error in Elon Musk's total valuation. So maybe it won't be good for the value of Twitter. Maybe he'll change change Twitter like into some like open algorithm. I think the concern is apparently from advertisers that he will let anyone tweet anything whenever they want. Um, and I'm sure Mark will have opinions about freedom of speech and people will be able to say whatever they want whenever they want. But advertisers are worried that if it becomes a quote-unquote cesspool that people won't want to advertise their products on Twitter. But, I mean, um, is it, isn't it already a cesspool? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it, it, if nothing else, he's made it 26% more interesting, uh, if, if not more valuable. At this point, Musk and... Oh, sorry, Mark, yeah. No, I was just saying uh, I may disagree with whatever you have to say, but uh, obviously I'll defend with my life your right to say it. Yeah, no, I think I, I, I think I probably agree with that. I think we might see, um, we could definitely see, might see Donald Trump back on Twitter soon, though, if um, Elon Musk, oh. Elon Musk gets his way. I was thinking it's about sort of the alg, out like less explicit stuff. So just sort of the way that the algorithm promotes tweets or not. Um, I think the point that Elon Musk said before was that he wants the algorithm to be like open source, so everyone can see how it works and how it sort of ranks different ranks different tweets. Um, I suppose the point for investors is very unclear. I think as yeah as as you said, it's very unclear how just twenty six percent more value equates to i mean it might be 26 percent more noise about twitter which there's always so much noise about twitter um anyway but whether you know how this actually translates into more value for a, a company or whether it is now just yeah the plaything of the world's richest man um which it already was arguably so he just has a board board seat to potentially disrupt things even more i mean the governance questions i suppose aren't they of the whole you know what what's to come but um yeah I don't know. I'm not seeing a, a a really good valuation case for why this is good. <laughs> this is what was the value? Well, was it um, Dogecoin also jumped? What was the valuation case for Dogecoin when um, Donald Trump yeah. tweeted a meme about it? Or not Donald Trump, sorry. Elon Musk tweeted a meme about Dogecoin. And it's yeah, it's just the, it's the proximity doubled. of Elon Musk to any asset, isn't it? Which is the uh, which is yeah. So just trying to touch the hem of his robe. <laughs> I think personally, I would pay to see him in one-on-one -on -one combat with Vladimir Putin. <laughs> he, he offered him out, didn't he, a couple of weeks ago? I think I remember that. <laughs> he did. Well, you know, Musk is a bit younger, but Putin's a is he a judo black belt? So I don't know whether the which yeah. one comes in your favour. Yeah, I think I know who my money would be on. Anyway, we digress. Uh, okay, finally for today. Um, Again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Warren Buffett is uh, is buying again. A few weeks ago, we were chatting about Berkshire Hathaway's acquisition of uh, the insurer Allegheny. Um, this week, he's bought um, four billion 
dollars worth of shares in IT conglomerate Hewlett Packard. Julian, what's the uh, what's the details here? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, you wait for it's a bit like waiting for buses. You wait for sort of Berkshire Hathaway for six years, and then a deal come two deals come along in two weeks. Um, so he's he's taken over he's taken over the stake in um, in Hewlett Packard, which is everyone's favourite dysfunctional uh, IT company, uh, allegedly. I am, I'm sure that we're covered if I can say that. Um, and it seems to me that it's it, the, the interesting thing from an investment point of view is that it looks like it's a pure valuation thing with Buffett. I mean, Buffett uh, is a famously um, purist value invest investor, and um, it looks like uh, HP, which is a, a, a largely sprawling conglomerate, which is another investment thing with him. He seems to be buying strange conglomerates at the moment. Um, uh, the HP is running sort of uh, nine times earnings, and uh, the the sort of the reference index, the S and P five hundred, is running at twenty five times earnings at the moment. Um, so it's a clear and interesting value play, I think, from that point of view. Uh, whether that will play out like that is is difficult to know. I mean, HP is sort of recovering, but it's had a very torrid few years. Um, some very odd management decisions, quite a lot of, um, you know, particularly the the, the, the difficult um, uh, acquisition of um, autonomy, which has been grinding through the courts uh, ever since 2011, really. Uh, and only this year has sort of reached something approaching a, conclusion um but there you can see that he's using in um value methodology to try and pick up the bounce on that company i think and it has the share price has been recovering it's it's sort of doubled over the last couple of years um but it's still only nine times earnings so it kind of shows you how far they fell um uh, but you know if the management's up to it then it's then it is it is a recovery play i guess um, or they could break it up. I mean, there's a, that's always the other option that they could start selling bits of it off. It, you know, it, it does all sorts of hardware, but it also has this kind of software as a service kind of industry space. Um, I think the, the the problem with HP is always gets behind the curve on everything. So they always buy something at a very high price, just as people are about to move on to the next the next bit of technology. <laughs> <laughs> so it's never been a particularly uh, happy. A happy company, I don't think, but um, yeah, so yeah, that that uh, that was a very interesting deal from the Sage of Omaha, I would say. Mm. But we'll see how it pans out. Mm. We shall. Do you, do you think there's something in the something in the current climate, the current turmoil that you know, as you say, Buffett and Berkshire haven't haven't really been been making any moves for the past six years, and then two come along at once. Do you think they've spotted that now's the is now well, the, a good the time? The other thing I think is interesting is it, yeah, sorry to interrupt. It, it's uh, the the thing that that it, that's also noticeable is that he seems to be buying companies that have a very US focus, and I don't know whether that's um, whether that's just like a vote of confidence in the US economy. I don't know whether um, he feels that. Uh, uh, you know, growth. You know, growth is still going to come in America, or or it's just a case of saying, well, what, are we buying companies now that aren't reliant on long supply chains? On you know, this kind of is the global globalization trend retreating to the extent that we you know 
we ought to be focusing or Berkshire ought to be focusing on on you know kind of in inland kind of investments and, and I think that's that might be an interesting theme that emerges from this I mean they you know that um yeah the the, the the smart money is looking at the global situation the global economy and deciding okay we don't need anyone with lots of you know factories in China um <laughs> is something that we're going to avoid and and that you know we're going to be good old US of A from now on I think that you know, that, that might be an, an emerging theme hmm. well we'll uh we'll see what he buys next week I guess um <laughs> Uh, great. Well, I think we'll call it a day there, guys. Thanks thanks for joining me. Um, thank you, listener, for listening uh, to this podcast, this podcast in association with Hollywood Bowl, Bowl um, <laughs> accidentally, this episode. <laughs> uh, but yes, we'll, we'll see you at the same time, uh, same time next week. So uh, we'll catch you then. Goodbye. The Companies and Markets podcast was edited and produced by me, John Rogers. And don't forget to head on over to iTunes or Spotify and hit subscribe and we'll show up in your feed each week. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.